Hey, heroes. Welcome to On Scene First. I'm your host, Tracy Eldridge. With over 25 years in public safety, I am wicked excited and honored to bring you entertaining, educational, and empowering conversations with public safety difference makers. Those folks are the ones that are harnessing the power of -of out-of-the-box thinking when it comes to the latest and greatest must-have technology tools, a people-first leadership approach, and mental health resources to save lives on both sides of the call. Before we get started, I want to say a huge thank you to our premier sponsor, NGA, Next Generation Advanced. With reliable, cloud-based, end-to-end NG91 solutions, I am wicked confident that they can fulfill your needs when it comes to next-gen core services, call handling, data analytics, and much more. Oh, and did I mention it's affordable and customizable? Make sure you visit our friends at www.nga911.com and tell them Tracy sent you. Now, on with the show. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thanks. So um, for those that are just tuning in, my guest today is Holly Williams, uh, one of my, my new really good friends. Yes, I, I guess I guess that's what you could say. Um, I am totally not sure how our paths didn't cross a lot sooner, uh, but I am beyond happy that they did when when we were in Kentucky recently, which was a very random place to meet you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, but I had heard about you and I heard about some shenanigans at the APCO conference. So uh, I'm like, who is this girl? I don't, I don't, I don't really know her, but I have to get to know her because what you did at the national APCO conference is something I would have totally done. And we'll get to that. But uh, yeah. so Holly Williams, for my listeners that don't know you, can you just give us a little synopsis of, of who you are today and, and what you're doing? And that will let folks know kind of why you're on my podcast today. Great. Well, thank you. Um, so I'm Holly Williams. I'm currently the training coordinator for the Orange County Emergency Communication Center located in Orange, Virginia. Um, I was born and raised in Virginia. I've been in 911 about 17 years. I got my start originally at the Quantico Marine Corps base as a civilian federal dispatcher for 13 years. And then, um, much like the federal government, there's not a hierarchy of of certain things in the 911, and I wanted more out of my career, so I took a leap of faith, applied for a supervisor job, came to Orange, worked as a supervisor for three years, um, really buckled down, got a lot of training in, grew my team, and then got promoted this past July to the training coordinator for our center, so now I get to help develop everybody in our center and not just my team. I love that. I I love that. And you know what I love even more is that when you when you just said like you didn't settle for staying somewhere because it was familiar and comfortable and you wanted to see yourself go to the to the next level. When did you realize you wanted to like not be and I'm going to say this and people are going to get all fired up just a dispatcher. And and what I mean by just a dispatcher is like in a frontline telecommunicator position where you don't have to worry about other people. You just worry about yourself. And that that's what I mean when I say just a dispatcher, because nobody's just a dispatcher. But when did, when was the moment where you were like, hmm, I think I need to, I need to level up. 
Well, I think for me, it was they finally had decided they were going to hire an additional supervisor at Quantico, and I had put in for the job, and I was very blessed. My uncle was a retired assistant chief from the fire department who then became a contract police dispatcher, and we worked very closely together for nine years on night shift together. Wow. And um, and he finally came to me one day with the newspaper thing, and he was like, let's face it. You, we all know you deserve the position, but they're never going to give you the position because you stand up for what's right. You speak your mind, you fight for your people, and they don't want that. He was like, they want somebody that's just going to be like, yes, sir, and go about their day. He's like, so you need to go. You need to go somewhere where you can make a difference, change the world, and 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 grow and get what you honestly deserve. He's like, you're much too good for, for staying here for the same old thing. So with his little bit of push... I was like, well, let me let me apply and let me see. But I think for me, what the straw that really broke the camel's back was we got a new leader who was put over top of the dispatch center. It was a fire chief. And I literally got in trouble on Monday for talking too much to my coworkers and in trouble again on Tuesday for not talk, talking at all to my coworkers. And I was kind of like, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to speak or not speak? And I'm a people person. I like to talk. I like to engage with people. I like to know about them. Um, not because I'm nosy. I just, I want to know what makes you tick, what, what, you know, drives you so that I can help maybe show you a way to grow or show you something that you didn't know in this industry. And, and to connect with them. I think, oh, girl, we're, we're opening some cans of worms today. I'm going to tell you that <laughs> right now because you and I are very similar in a lot of places. And I and I do think this is a really important topic. Uh, but I think a lot of people misunderstand those of us that do talk a lot um, is that we, we we are nosy or, you know, we, we have to be the center of attention and things like that. And when reality, if you got to know us and the folks that are our personality styles, you would know that we want to connect with you, that we want good relationships and we want to work well with others. And really that's, that's the bottom line. Would you agree? Absolutely. Uh, I think wholeheartedly for me, that's the way it is. And to be perceived as someone that's just being nosy or just talking too much or now not talking at all. It's like, you can't smack my hand on Monday and then smack my hand on Tuesday because I'm doing what you told me to do on Monday. That just kind of, you know, took their credibility away for, for me when it came to me and I didn't trust them. I, I didn't know what I was going to be in trouble for the next day. And it just made the environment of working there so uncomfortable. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I felt tremendous guilt by leaving because that had been my home for 13 years and those were my people. And there's some of them that I still stay in touch with. I mean, my brother's still a fire captain there and I worry about him day in and day out because I know what kind of hands I left them in as a dispatcher. Our job is to see that everyone goes home at the end of the day. And some days I always wondered, you know, is that gonna be the case today? So. Yeah. And it, and it's super, it's super hard, especially when you're somebody who's passionate and you want to do the right thing. And there's this misconception or perception of you as either being a troublemaker or being non-existent. And, and I know for my personality, I, within one second, I can go from extrovert to introvert. I can go from outgoing to reserved, and it is based on the energy and the way that I have been treated. And, and it sounds like it's the same for you. And I, and I applaud you for recognizing that. How long would you say it took you from 
the time that you were starting to feel this uncomfortableness to make the decision to move on? Did you stick around for a while or was it something that you were like, no, I, I'm not settling for this and I'm out quick? It took me about probably three months um, from the time that my uncle brought me the newspaper ad asking or looking for a supervisor to going through their process, applying, interviewing, because I had to schedule that because I didn't want to tell anybody what I was planning. Right. Um, and then once I actually had a firm offer, I had, you know, discussed it with my uncle. And I mean, obviously, I knew I was going to take a pay cut. And I was like, I think I can still make it. And at the end of the day, like peace of mind, sometimes is far outweighs what you're going to make as far as money goes. I mean, we need money to live, but if I can make it and get by, then sometimes that peace of mind was well worth it. And for me, it was, and it gave me great pride to walk in and be like, your problem child is out of here. I've accepted a position. I'm bouncing in two weeks. Well, and, and so a couple of things, number one, yes, you can take a pay cut. And I think Folks don't realize that. And when I was getting ready to leave the center, which folks have heard my story, and, and when I was getting ready to leave the center, in my mind, I had to make what I make now. But in reality, I just had to stop buying su stupid stuff on Amazon, right? Like, right. I, I don't need to be impulsively shopping. I don't need the $6 coffee every day if it's going to be that peace of mind. And when I left my center, while I was fortunate that I didn't take a significant pay cut, it just looked different. Um, how I was getting paid looked different. And, and it was scary. It was, it was super scary. And then the other thing I want to point out is the way you just referred to yourself as the problem child. And I think that's really important. And I know you don't think that. I, I know 100% you don't think that. And I know that you're super proud of yourself and the work that you do. However, I want to point out the fact that that is what mean people do to folks like us is that very easily their words, their behaviors, and the way that we are treated can turn us into thinking less about ourselves. And I think that is a big bucket of suck. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, that's kind of the way that that chief had made me feel during that time period leading up to my departure was I, you know, nothing I did was ever right. Um, when he was a captain prior to being promoted to assistant chief, he always came to me for advice, asking about like dispatch statistics because he knew I could break it down in a term that he could understand. And once he got promoted, he no longer wanted my input and he just completely treated me differently and just belittled and put me down. And I finally was like, enough is enough. I deserve better. And I am going to go do great things. Well, I think that's amazing. And I think we need to, as, as leaders and supervisors, I mean, everybody to me as a leader in the center, they have the ability to shift and to mold and to guide folks. But there are what I call title leaders, the folks that have the, you know, the captain and the lieutenant and the chief and the director and the supervisor and things like that. And and I, one of the goals of, of my company when I started was to really get folks to understand that we have to get better at putting our people first. And that means first being kind. Uh, I don't know where that got lost along the way, or was it even really ever a thing? What do you think? Like, if you go back to it, I mean, first of all, you're in a, a paramilitary kind of organization, right? Right. And, and so I know the types of personalities that 
gravitate towards that. Did you ever feel like you were part of a team or, or did you always, did you feel like you were an outsider trying to find your place? Uh, I think the first few years, I really felt like I was part of the team. And I think as far as like the guys that worked the road or the fire guys that were like the same kind of level as me, you know, your boots on the ground, so to speak, we always got along. They trusted me. They knew I could do my job. They knew I was going to do everything I could to keep them safe. Um, so I don't really know where that whole be kind um kind of lost its way along the way. But I really think it was we had some big leadership changes and some people being promoted. And in the government, it's all about what certifications you have and not necessarily the qualities you possess to be that leader and be someone that's in charge. And just because you have more on paper doesn't necessarily mean you're the right person for that position. And I think that's one of the bad things about the, the military is the way that people are promoted. Yeah. And well, that and that happens in a lot of places that happens in a lot of the government. I, I've seen folks that have been promoted, you know, to the supervisor, to the training person, to the director of the 9-1 center. And they very clearly, you know, should not be in that position, but yet it was given to them. And it's going to be very, very challenging to get that taken away from them. Uh, and then it just creates this animosity of of an environment that is not conducive to growth. Like I I did a uh, survey. I want to say it was back in 2019 for the APCO national uh, international show, and I was asked to do a presentation on going from the P uh, the. ECC to the private sector. And I just thought that was interesting that they asked me to do that because like, do you want people to leave? Because that's kind of going to be the message that I'm going to give folks. But in reality, I don't want folks to leave. I think we're so shorthanded these days. And I truly want us to, to do two things. One, I want us to get better at recognize, recognizing the need for mental health and resources in that area. But I also want to get us to get to a place where if I am a people-driven person and you are a task-driven person, that you can understand that my brain doesn't work the same as yours. And if we can start getting folks to lower the level of expectations on what we expect of people, I think we might reduce conflict. But what would you consider the number one reason why people are leaving 911 centers today? For me, I think it's culture. Um, I think growing up along the lines of being in the fire department as well as in 911, um, we have a tendency to have that mean girls mentality of, you know, eating our young, the new people that come through the door. Sometimes I feel like we're really hard on them. We don't do enough to build their confidence. Um, I know for us in Orange, culture was a huge thing. When I came here, we lost nine of 16 full-time employees in the first five months I was here. The wow. culture was so bad. And I, I mean, for, I mean, most of those evenings I would sit in my car and cry, like, did I make the right decision? Like, you know, did I just leave a center that I thought was bad for a center that's even worse? Um, but we had some leadership changes. We got a new director who came in with like a really open mind and, we, you know, made small changes, like we don't refer to our shifts as shifts, we call them teams. So you're assigned to a team so you can be part of the team. Um, and those just the little things that we've really worked hard on to try to change the narrative. Um, you know, we've had some toxic people that are like, well, if you don't promote me, I'm going to leave. And Bye. we're like, there's the door. <laughs> like, we'd rather work short staff than keep somebody around that's negative all the time. 
Yeah. So we really do have a really good culture going in Orange County right now, which is great. And that's I think that's awesome. what makes me excited to come to work is that, you know, now that I work Monday through Friday and I only have to work eight hours, I'm still here 10, 11, 12 hours because I get to see my people and I want to see right. the night shift and I'll hang out because why not? Um, so, you know, there's those kind of things too, that, that just make it worthwhile. Well, I love the team aspect. Like it's even just little things like that, that can shift an entire culture. What I want to know is, did you have buy-in when the culture, or when you were trying to change the culture? Because one of the things I read somewhere, I can't remember, maybe it was Simon Sinek or some somebody, uh, but he said, you know, buy-in isn't optional. Like if there are going to be changes that get made, you know, when I, when I go back to the rapid SOS stuff, when I was trying to drive folks to understand the importance of this free technology that's going to save lives, there were folks that were like, yeah, no, I don't want to sign into another screen and have to change my password. And it was like, they were resistant to this change. And the one thing I know to be true about telecommunicators is we don't like how it is, but they don't want to change either. As you came in and you wanted to try to make these positive culture changes, did you meet resistance or were folks, not the folks that left because they were kind of jaded and cranky little elves anyway, what about the consensus? Did they buy in at first or did it take a lot to get their mindset to shift? I think for my team, um, there was probably some days that they wanted to like, you know, pull their hair out or yell and scream at me because I was kind of giving them some, a little bit of push um, to, hey, if you want to be, you know, moving up, if you want to be a CTO, you want to be a supervisor, like these are the things, you know, this is the path you need to go down. And, you know, looking back now, I've promoted two off of my team to supervisor positions. Um, I'm very proud of both of them. And, you know, like, they're like, we get it. We we get what your job was as leader. Your, your job was to make us better. And, you know, while it was maybe some growing pains to begin with until they kind of got on board and then they were like, Nope, this is the way it is. Our shift has high expectations. We're going to be a team. We're going to work together. And they really were a, a really high performing team. And now they get to lead their own teams and do the same for their teams, which is pretty cool to sit back and watch. Like I'm more proud of them and their accomplishments than I am of my own because I know well, I had a hand in and getting them to that point, but to watch them grow and lead and do things they never dreamed of, that's more rewarding to me. Well, and that's empowering them, number one, and not micromanaging them. And I know micromanagement looks very different in, in many places. Do you feel that? Sorry, my like, lights turned off in my office. <laughs> that's okay um and they can edit that out I yeah. say they my friend Dan Dan edit that out um but I totally forgot to say that <laughs> we're like, talking hey. about empowering them oh yeah so do you feel that tell me what you think about empowerment. Like what are the, what are the positive things with empowering your team? I know one of the things that I wish that I had done, and that was to level someone up as a supervisor for a couple of reasons, but I was a very small center and I didn't think that I could do that. I will tell you 100% today, if I 
was back in that place, if I could turn back the hands of time, I would have leveled someone up as a supervisor. I would have enlisted someone as helping me with training because as a single small center communications director, I thought that I was supposed to do everything. So it sounds like you passed off some stuff. What did that look like? Passing things off and empowering people to do things. What did that do for you? Well, I think that gave them a little bit of ownership in the center was it empowered them to have a piece that they were responsible for. And even like with our supervisor team, um, every one of the supervisors has a specialty, so to speak. So I was in charge of training. We had somebody else that was accreditation and QA. We had somebody else that was like the technology aspect of it, helping with like CAD password resets and things like that. And then we had somebody that was our NCIC TAC for the agency that kind of made sure we were doing paperwork the way we needed to. So our director kind of gave us those things because it took it off of his plate. We were responsible for it and then we could push it out to them. So on our team, I kind of divided up duties as far as, you know, sheriff's office or PD responsibilities, fire rescue, you know, who was going to enter paperwork, who was going to be responsible for second party checks. I also took my CTOs because they're the next in line essentially for that promotion. And I started teaching them supervisor duties. And I mean, people were like, why are you letting them supervisor check that? I'm like, what does it hurt? They're a third party check. They learn yep. what I have to look for as the supervisor so that if they get promoted, I don't have to spend six months training them how to be a supervisor. They've already right. basically got the tools. They just need to learn how to do the personnel side of things. So I think it really empowered them to grow. I knew that I could sit off the floor and do QAs in my office. And if they needed me, they'd come get me. But I empowered them to be able to make decisions on the fly and be able to stand their ground and justify why they did what they did in order for them to continue rolling on and not need me to sit in there and essentially babysit them because I didn't need to babysit them. I'd given them that empowerment and those tools to be able to do it themselves. And that's really that's that's really the point that I was trying to make because I know that there are there are challenging moments. So what I'm gonna throw this out there for anybody that's listening that may have ADHD or um maybe diagnosed or undiagnosed with ADHD, but I was diagnosed with ADHD at 45 years old. And it was after I left the 9-1 center, which didn't make sense to me because I'm like, you look <laughs> at me and it's like this, this, okay, yeah, she, ha she had ADHD. But unfortunately, ADHD in young girls looks like you talk too much and you interrupt and, you know, you you start things, but you don't finish them. Uh, you're lazy, like, like things like that. And one of the things that I did learn, and, and this is I'm, I, like, I'm just talking just in the last year, uh, I learned that... I was called a micromanager in, in some situations, but in reality, I wasn't. And the reason why I say that, and the reason why I think this is really important to, to bring up because it is, it does have to do with that delegation piece is for somebody who has a brain that works like mine, anything that I see that has a lot of steps to it, I will tend to avoid and I won't do until the last minute. And that's when it's going to get executed is in that last minute when there's a, a deadline or the, the you know, 12th hour is encroaching. And not that long ago, I was working on a project with someone and they kept asking what they could do to help me. And I'm like, I don't have anything right now. And they were getting frustrated and they called me a micromanager. And that really bothered me 
because in that moment I realized I wasn't now don't get me wrong. There are micromanagers and they, they have a different reason, but I want to clarify this reason. And it, maybe it helps somebody understand who they are. And it may help somebody understand who the other person might be is I realized in that moment that while there were times I was a micromanager, there was a lot of times that I just couldn't get the steps and the things that I needed formulated to a way to pass off to somebody. Does that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. No, that makes perfect sense. And I, and I agree with you. And I mean, like, I, I think that's what about you drew me to you when we were at Kentucky as I was sitting in on your session and I'm like oh my gosh that's me that's me that's me and I, <laughs> I, I literally I kept like she likes to talk so do I and yeah. I think that's why we hit it off so well when we were chit-chatting at Kentucky was because we both like to talk um, and we had it shared a lot of the same similar types of events not you know yeah you know from the hierarchy of director versus you know supervisor but still with leadership and challenges we had shared a lot of that and I'm like I need to go see if I've got ADHD because all of these things like I like big assignments but when it has 4,000 parts to it I you know I'm in crunch time now for my p33 stuff that needs to be in by <laughs> December 1st and I'm like how did three months get by me you know and but I work better when it's under pressure and I can get it done but you know learning how to delegate and things like that that's not an easy skill for me because I'd rather just do it myself and know it's done right than have to check over it but I've got two supervisors that I promoted that are fantastic so I'm like you guys can help me because I know you're going to put in the level of effort that I would put in so that makes it kind of well, cool too and I and I think the really important thing and and this is probably the first time that I've kind of got in depth in this conversation this type of conversation but I think it's super necessary because if you can look at somebody from a distance and say oh they're not lazy oh they're not because I'll tell you another thing that I learned is that for me with with my ADHD is it is either all or nothing there's no in between there there's never in between i uh, i'm i'm either hyper focused and and you can't interrupt me and i'm not going to stop until that gets done and if that means working on something for 24 hours straight to get it done usually at the last minute that's when i'll do it but if i was to try to do something in pieces it would not be as well executed as if i did it at the last minute. So instead of worrying about things, so I, I just want to share something that I learned and maybe this will help you. Maybe you do the same thing. Maybe somebody needs to hear this today. Stop not doing things because you have a deadline that's a month away. And what I mean by that is I just remember I had something that I was working on and a friend asked me to go to the beach. And I'm <laughs> like, no, I can't. I, I have to work on this project. All well knowing I was not going to touch that project, I should have went to the beach. So in our mind, we cause ourselves so much stress because I got to work on the project. I got to work on the project. I got to work on the project. When in reality, I now know that I'm going to block off three days before it's due on my calendar and I'm going to hyper focus there and I'm going to get it done. So what I just did is I just opened up all of this space to do things that I enjoy, to do things that I love. And I'm not going to stress over it. And so for you to be able to delegate, do you think that it was a challenge for you? I'm sure it was, but was it a challenge for you to accept the fact that things were not going to get done exactly the way you would have done them and that it was okay? Yes, absolutely. Because that's um, part of delegation, right? It is. 
Um, you know, but at the same time, I think because, I mean, like, sweet Jeremy, I just loved him. I've had him since he was a brand new, never touched a radio dispatcher who's now a supervisor three years later, just shy of three years. Um, and he's amazing at what he does and he pays attention to detail and he has a lot of those same qualities that I have. He may not be the biggest talker and he may not have some of the same traits, but I know his attention to detail. And so I'm like, here's basically what you need to do. Let me know if you have problems. I'm going to give you these couple of sections. And I know he'll roll through them and he'll rock it out and get those things done. Same thing with Christy. Um, She's, you know, very detail oriented. She likes to talk to. So we're very much one in the same um and I think that's why we get along is because we kind of both get it and we've been there she came from a center where she was told she was weak and would never make it and this was not a career for her and she's absolutely killing it and thriving in the right center with the right culture with the right people backing her to give her those tools to be successful um so between both of them like they're my go-tos I you know always hey I need your help with this and I know they're gonna give me that same effort that they gave me when I was their supervisor on the floor so I have it's just learning folks, to trust them. <laughs> it will. It really is. And and I have some folks that are helping me with some of the stuff that I'm doing. And, and I, I literally laid it all out on the table. I'm like, I'm going to reach out to you. If you're willing to help me, this is who I am. This is how I roll. I'm probably going to contact you at the last minute. If you have the ability to help me, great. If not, just understand that I'm not doing it because I'm lazy and that I don't have the, I just don't have the ability to execute until, until that moment. So to be called a name, a micromanager, because my brain just physically could not pull out what I knew what I wanted in this project. I knew what I wanted to do. I know what I wanted it to look like, but until, until my brain says, okay, sit down and do it. It won't, it won't do it. Right. It just won't do it. Just like your project 33, you, you will get it done and you will always get it done. And then you will be a hero. And I mean, you're a hero anyway, in my eyes, but I want to talk specifically about how, how, how do I say this? You're doing a lot of really good things. You, Holly Williams are doing a lot of really good things. You're, you're being seen, you're being heard. You're, you're looked at as an up and coming leader outside of the profession, because I think it was once you were able to come outside of the military type 91 center that you were able to flourish and go. Absolutely. If there's, if there's somebody out there feeling like an imposter, feeling like I don't deserve to level up or I can't do it, what would you tell them? I would tell them absolutely you can. Um, and I think that's one of the things we interviewed somebody that was an out or uh, external candidate for supervisor and, you know, their reservations about coming to our organization was, I don't want to be that dispatcher that's known for like working here for a year or two and then going to this center and then going to that center. And I'm like, but at the end of the day, you need to find the center that makes you feel like you're home. And when you can come in the door and feel like your family and that this is where I can make the greatest difference or do the greatest good for the citizens, for my responders, for my teammates, then you found home. So I would think for anybody that's out there that can't, that feels like they're stuck or that they are loyal to that agency. I was very loyal to my first agency. I mean, 
our family had over 80 years of continuous federal fire service at that department between wow. my grandfather, my uncle, my brother, myself, we'd been there for a long time. And that that's still going. Cause my brother's still there. He's only got like five or six years till retirement. So, <laughs> um, you know, so I felt like I was part of that family history and everybody worked and retired from there. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if I can go. But then my little brother, I love him to death. We're very close. And he was like, go, you deserve so much more than what you're going to get from here. And just in the three years that I've been here, three and a half years, I mean, I've gotten RPL, I've gotten CPE, which I mean, there's less than 200 of those in the country. Who would have ever thought that me, the supervisor from Orange County would have been selected for that program, hands down best leadership program I've ever been through in my life. And I wouldn't trade my classmates or the connections that I've made all across the country. But I would have never had those doors opened or had those opportunities had I chosen to stay because this is what we've always done. This is where our families always worked. Um, so I think sometimes taking that leap of faith and just saying, you know, let me see what it is. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Truth. Yep. It, it certainly didn't come without challenges when I made that choice to come here. But now when I can sit back three and a half years later and say, I've taken all these classes, I have grown my team, I've promoted to supervisors, I've taught at several national conferences for different things, whether it be APCO, NINA, IAED, you know, like I've gotten our message out there about um, taking care of our own through an article I got to publish in the journal, you know, just so many things that I've gotten to do to facilitate classes for RPL. I would not have had those doors opened had I chose to stay. So right. I'm very thankful for the path that it put me on because I've met people like yourself and, you know, my new director that we've had for the last two years, people from all over the country that, you know, I could fly to pretty much any state and have somebody to stay with and go yeah. hang out and visit because of the connections that I made that I would have never had if I had just stayed at that agency. Well, and now I'm going to ask you, it might be a hard question. It might not. You might be like, oh yeah, I can answer that in a second. Is there any part of Holly that doubts herself because of the way, like today, Holly today, is there any part of you that doubts yourself and your capabilities based on who you thought you were because of the way other people treated you? Uh, I'm going to have to go with absolutely not. Um, I feel okay. like I have been allowed to grow and be myself and found a home and an agency that respects me. And I mean, my people, they love me and they confide in me and I get to be their leader and I get to show them how a good leader should be. And, you know, I don't have to worry about that stigma that was at my other agency because I know that my people will have my back every day of the week. That's that's amazing because I think we need more people driven leaders to the person that isn't the most people driven leader today. Um, that's very task focused and maybe short or you know, not really engage in a personal level with their staff, what would you say to that person today? 
So it's funny that you say that because I was just thinking um, when I went to leave Quantico, I had a captain, um, Captain Lewis, and I loved him dearly for the time that I worked with him. And he taught me to be a better dispatcher. He taught me a lot about the fire service, how to think outside of the box, how to make that judgment call at 3 a.m. when there's nobody to call and ask. And so he had been a supervisor. He was a well respected captain. And I called him and was like, Hey, this is what's going on. I got this job opportunity. And he was like, go, absolutely go. And I was like, well, do you have any advice for me when I go? And he was like, at the end of the day, if you do nothing else, simply take care of your people for your people will always take care of you. And here on, you know, three and a half years later, I still remember that quote. I still talk about it in my presentations. I talk about it when I'm teaching classes because I had to learn what that meant. I had to learn how to take care of my people. And I mean, I remember an incident where a fire chief didn't necessarily agree with what the dispatcher did. And the dispatcher came to me and was like, hey, I did this. You're probably going to hear from the chief. And when he called and I was able to look at it objectively from a fire perspective and a dispatch perspective and basically kind of poked holes in his story and that dispatcher was standing outside of my office door jumping up and down with his arms up in the air and he was like finally somebody is standing up for me the dispatcher you know because a lot of times it's always like okay we'll fix that but there was nothing for us to fix we did our job we did it effectively it was on on their perception and so you know to have that dispatcher that was like cheering me on from the hallway like so excited that somebody was standing up for him I was like that's what it means to take care of my people like to have their back because they're gonna have mine when I need them to have mine so it's something that I think is definitely a learned skill and it's taken me three and a half years to really try to learn to take care of my people but because I know that there are folks out there that are not people driven that no. they really don't care um, about the person. And it's not, it's not, I, I don't want to say it's not a bad thing because it stinks, but there are just folks that don't understand the people aspect of things because their brain. So I, I, I shared this story sometimes with um, folks in one of my classes. So Reinhard Eckel was my boss when I started at Rapid SOS. And if you know Reinhard, you know that Reinhard and I are two totally different people. We're like, if there were polar opposites, it was going to be Reinhard and I. And he was very task driven. And, you know, there were a couple of times that I had gotten emotional about some stuff because I was new to this whole, like I I hadn't even mourned Tracy Eldridge chief dispatcher yet. And, and I was thrown into this task driven role. Uh, I wish I knew now that there were things that I probably should have just said, yeah, that's not really in my skill set nor my wheelhouse. So I'm going to ask you to give that to somebody else. But the person that I was, I wanted to learn how to do it, to make him proud, to get that pride piece of it. And I remember there were times that Reinhard would say something like, Tracy, why can't you just and that sentence to me means so much because there were times that I could say the same to him, right? So when I was trying to, I I share this story about when I first started, I had to take eight cell phones. So Android and Apple on all four of the major major carriers. I had to take that out, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) I had to take eight cell phones. Apple and Android devices on all four of the major carriers. And I had to go to like six centers across the state of Tennessee. 
And all Reinhardt told me to do, he's like, it's super simple. Like in anybody's brain, it would be super simple. I need you to make a test call on each device. And I need you to document the latitude and longitude on the alley and on the device. So in other words, let's see if they're matching up, right? How, how far off are they? Yeah, to most people that was simple, not to this kid. It was super challenging because when I got there, I was more about visiting with the dispatchers and talking about what it was like to be a dispatcher a long time ago and the transition to rapid SOS. And, and then I'm like, oh, I guess I got to do this task thing. But I didn't have any tools in place. I didn't create a spreadsheet because we don't, I, people, people don't create spreadsheets. And then I took pictures of the screens. So I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take a picture of the alley and I'm going to take a picture of the location on the phone. And then I'm going to get to the airport and I'm going to sit down and focus. And I'm going to plug all those numbers in. No, if I knew who I was now, I would never have done it that way. I would have done it very differently. But what happened was my flight got canceled and then I couldn't get out to the next day and I had to get home. And I kept calling Reinhard and telling him like, cause this was my, one of my first big travel trips. And I was getting super upset that I couldn't get home. And he's like, do you have the spreadsheet? And I'm like, dude, you don't understand. Like I can't get home. And he's like, right, but I need the spreadsheet. And it was like, <sighs> there was this disconnect between home and family and your stupid spreadsheet. And, and I lost it. Like I just, I started crying. And for somebody that's task driven, they don't love that. And I think after the whole thing was said and done, we sat down at our next meeting and we talked about the differences between us. We're just two different people. And, and while a simple task of tracking some latitudes and longitudes turned into this major meltdown crisis for me, right? So as a task-driven person, one of the things that when we parted ways, when he moved on and, and, and I moved on, um, I thanked him for making me more responsible and he thanked me for making him a little bit softer. So I think it can change. Do, do you Absolutely. think folks can change? Absolutely. I, I think, awesome. you know, like when I got here, I mean, I came from a military background, so I was very used to policies, procedures. This is the way we do it, black and white. And here we have a little bit more latitude to help make some of those decisions. So. Absolutely. And so you mentioned um, you got your RPL, you got your, you went through the CPE program. If somebody's on the fence about doing any of these projects, what would you tell them? I would tell them to do it. Absolutely. Um, RPL was great. Uh, it's a year long program. Um, I was privileged enough to do that with one of my coworkers. So we were both in the same group, um, which I think at some points made things challenging. Um, so I would say do it in a group where you don't know anybody because then you yeah. meet people and you make friends from all over the country. And I mean, I think sometimes I was like, wow, that was a really good answer. Now what am I going to say? Because right. Jay would answer um, something that, um, you know, we did in our center. Um, so that, I think that made it a little bit more challenging, but I wouldn't change the experience with her because she's a wealth of knowledge and I enjoyed our year in that class together. Um, CPE, hands down, um, most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life, but at the same time, the most rewarding. Uh, I got to give a shout out to CPE 11. It's a whole, whole thing. <laughs> I know it's a thing. I know I it's know. a thing. I, uh, I didn't get to take it. I was going to be taking it and then I ended up leaving the center, but I did the comm center manager class through Fitch and Associates. And if I had to compare the two without 
being in CPE, I would say that they're both very similar in that you you share these learning and educational moments and there's there's laughs, there's tears, there's you know all of the life 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 changing uh relationships is that do you know anything about a life changing relationship that came out of cpe talk to me about it uh well i mean i think that was kind of the uh joke going in was you know everybody always said oh it'll change your life and so i think for me i i don't know that it necessarily changed my life per se, like the way some people say, but it was definitely hands down the best leadership class I've ever taken. Um, And I think it made me look at myself as a leader and made me more open to putting things out there and trying new things and um, just gave me, you know, 12 of the best uh, CPE class ever to go to when I have questions and we still all keep in touch. I mean, when you've got Tim from Montana flying into DC for something, then you got to find a way to be there because that's how we re- reunite and reconnect. And, you know, you don't take a, take out those, um, those opportunities because of that, that class and, and the way you bond with your classmates. Um I think that was a great experience. I also, I had my CMCP. So that was one of the things that the Mm -hmm. Marine Corps did was they picked um, their supervisors and then their senior dispatchers back in like 2014. And in a matter of like six weeks, they sent us to CTO, center supervisor, CMCP, and registered us for an EMP test. I didn't know what any of those things were. Um, Literally EMP was the first time I'd ever failed a test in the 911 industry. And I was so devastated that they set me up for failure because it's just a book. And there was no class and they literally registered us in like four weeks to go take this. Well, test. there's a class now. Well, <laughs> so nonetheless, um, I had worked, I got here and I was like, you know, I think I'm finally ready. I want to go sit and retest on my ENP. It took me seven years to get over that fear of failure to go yeah. and retest. And I am, and and now I'm an ENP because I did get that certification that. in 2021. Um, but all of those experiences, you know, I wouldn't have had without Orange County and, you know, having a director that's like, go take all the things. I mean, I did apply for a lot of scholarships and I will go back to the CPE. So while I was there, we had this whole discussion on, do you need a degree um, in the 911 world and what, whether or not that's important. And to me, I'm like, well, I have an associate's degree. Like, I feel like that, you know, is something. And I have all these other classes, RPL, CPE. I'm like, why do I need a four-year degree? And they were like, well, if you want to move up, if you want to keep moving, you got to keep getting that education. So by the time we had left our CPE class, I had spoken with my stepdad and I was like, I need your help. I want to go back to school. And I found this program (laughs) and he was like, okay, what college are you going to go to? And he gave me one of the ones here. And I was like, no, I want to go to Alabama. And he was like, what? That's so crazy. And I'm like, I know, but I love their football team. And how cool would it be to have a degree from there? So I actually got accepted at Alabama and I should be done by fall of um, next next year with my four-year degree from Alabama. Good for so, you. And what, what, what would your, um, what is your degree going to be in? Um, so it's a Bachelor of Arts, but they have a what's called a new college life track program where it's for working adults. And so my like, I guess the 
major of that concentration is in leadership studies. So all of my classes have been on like, I'm taking one this semester that's the glass ceiling, women at work. And it's all about breaking that glass ceiling, which is right up my alley. I love it. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there's just a whole lot of different classes that are tailored, master mentoring, um, leading through change, that, you know, high performing teams. So they're all things that are relevant to what I'm doing in the workforce. Um, but I can also get college credit for those classes and, you know, hopefully graduate by this time next year from Alabama. So my stepdad was Absolutely. on board. He was a huge supporter. He was like, your mom, that's all she wanted was for you to finally get that four-year degree. So I'll do whatever I can to help get you through it. So um, sadly, we just lost him a couple of weeks ago. So no, that is so just, sorry. yeah, thanks. It's just the mission of, you know, I have to get this done now if I do it for nothing else, but to do it for him, because he would have been really proud. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're encroaching on an hour and that stinks because there's so much more <laughs> that I want to talk to you about. So we will definitely have a part two because there's, there's some uh, other topics, but I try to stay within the hour. Um, and I just want to say thank you for, you know, first sharing what you did today. I, I think a lot of folks may fear that leveling up or fear that failure that might come with it if they don't put themselves out there. I also want to commend you for saying uh, what you said about settling for a place and not wanting to be the person that goes from one place to another to another. On one of my past episodes with Cassie Sexton, we talked about she had gone uh, from one center to another center to another center to find that place that you referred to as a home. And I think that's okay. Would you would you agree? Oh, it's okay absolutely. to do that. I, I, I think as a, as a director i'd rather see like oh you went from here to here to here and then i ask you why and if you tell me that they just weren't the best fit for you that's a little bit different than me just making an assumption that you're you're bouncing from job to job right absolutely and and i think that's really important is finding somewhere that you fit in and that their culture and their mission and their goals aligns with your goals and where you want to be and where you see yourself because I don't want to be limited and, you know, the, the ceiling really is, you know, a glass ceiling that I intend to break. And, you know, I mean, after all, I did get married at the APCO conference. So, well, and know, that's, I that mean, was that's committed. That was, that, and, and, and I was going to wrap up with that, but you just whoop, ran right into that. Um, number one, that's a dedication to the profession when you're, when you're uh, wedding party or your wedding guests uh, were your colleagues. I cannot let you go without telling that story. So I did hear your name and I heard Holly Williams got married at the fountain last night. And I'm like, who is this Holly Williams that I need to get to know her? How and where? Because there are folks that heard it. They, yeah. What happened? How how did, how did uh, that even happen? So my husband and I, we were talking about it. And, you know, when you plan a wedding and I mean, as old as we are, I mean, we're with our family all the time. They see us all the time. And I'm like, you know, we can't really expect our friends from all over the country to travel. And I'm like, how cool would it be to surprise our C my CPE class with a wedding? And so Tim Martindale, who's the director from Gallatin out in Montana, when we were in CPE, he had mentioned that he had gone to school early on to be a preacher and this, that, and the other, and then ended up in 911. So we called him on a whim and we were like, hey, if we want to get like wild and crazy in, um, you know, at APCO, are you down? And he's like, well, that depends on your definition of wild and crazy. <laughs> and so we were like, we were thinking about like a surprise wedding, like getting all of the 
crew together for like a photo and then being like surprise and he was like oh absolutely i'm down so he got ordained and then priya robles from fremont california police um she was also in our cpe class and very close to tim and i and so we kind of let her in on it so she helped kind of get everybody wrangled together and champagne and stuff and so we were like meet at the fountains at nine for a picture for our cpe group so people were struggling it in such a random time right it was it was such such a a, random time because people were going to dinner so we were trying to find where it didn't interfere with anything and so then tim got up on his soapbox about you know after cpe holly went back to college and it inspired me so i went and got ordained and he pulls his little clergy badge out of his pocket with his bucky's t-shirt on because it's a whole cpe thing and everybody's like dying laughing at him and then he was like you know mac and holly come on up here let's get married and i mean the reaction and you know the people that weren't in on it that didn't know what was like happening to see their reactions and and you know have them be part of that that was really a lot of fun because we figured we were already going to be there we were going to be with all of our friends from all over the country to save them an airplane ride and you know a bunch of money for a weekend when we could just celebrate and have a good time while we were at APCO so So what did so what did your so what did your family at home think were they like what the heck and like did you come uh, home and have a party were they allowed to celebrate with you so we um we did take pictures and we like had like a whole letter about hey like this is what we did and fun fact because we met in Orange County Virginia we got married in Orange County California so East Coast West Coast kind of thing and yeah you know we were like here's you know photo and we sent out like postcards to everybody in our family so of course they were all just like oh my gosh this is so you so crazy like they were like we knew it like <laughs> I, I you know and we were like you know next year when the weather's nice we'll have a a big party my um, cousin down in South Carolina she got married during COVID. Like they literally just went to like a notary because that's all South Carolina requires and they sent out postcards as well. So we were kind of piggybacking on her idea, but just a little different. So hopefully next year when the weather's nice, we can have a big family get together now that we're kind of coming out of the whole COVID pandemic where we can all get together and celebrate both of us. So that's such a great story. So and and, in true um, connection fashion, I'm not one upping you. I'm not going to one up you. I'm just going to share a comparison. Um, I did similar. And I, I don't, I don't think I told you this. I don't know if I told you this, uh, but when my husband and I got married, my husband and I, Jeff, uh, we had moved in together, had my daughter, Lauren, and she was about five months old. It was the beginning of December. And we just had a conversation. We're like, you know, we really should get married. And, and my husband said, well, if we do it by the end of the year, we'll get a, a break on our taxes. So I was like, yeah, why don't we, all right. So we had a Christmas party. And we told everybody on the invitation that there'll be a surprise guest at 7 p.m. Don't be late. And everybody thought it was Santa Claus because it was five <laughs> days before Christmas. And the only we only told a couple of people. We told um, my husband's grandparents because they were older and they didn't like to come to parties. And then we told my uh, at the time, my soon to be nine year old stepdaughter, because we didn't want to just throw that onto her. So right. And, and his dad who lived in Colorado. So other than that, nobody knew. And and sure enough, as, as no sooner we were married, the tone went off and there were like 15 firefighters at our house for a fire alarm. And the, my husband, my new husband looks across the room at me and I shook my head. No, like you don't have to go. It's like, it's a fire alarm. And then my deputy chief got on scene and the house was full of smoke and that was it. They all left. (laughs) (laughs) So it was so appropriate. So yeah, I don't think you told me that that's, that's epic. Yeah. (laughs) We just wanted to create something that was going to be remembered. And I mean, 
you know, when you have the executive director of APCO mention it in his remarks that I you love know, it. we had a first last night at APCO, like it's pretty, it's pretty big deal. It's fun. So that is, that is fun. And I don't see this being your first your, I don't see it being your last first. I think I think you are going to break that glass ceiling, and and I'm proud to have you as a friend now. And I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And and we'll be looking for a part two in the near future. So stay safe, my friend. I appreciate you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back, heroes. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please like and follow me on all On Scene First social media so you too can keep up with my shenanigans. And make sure you get to know our friends over at NGA Next Generation Advance. You can start by heading over to their social media and thanking them for being our premier sponsor. Remember, stay safe, stay strong, and stay here. We need you.